The passage we're looking at this morning is in the sixth chapter of First Timothy. Uh, we've read uh, through these verses last week. We've read all the way to the end of the chapter. This morning, I want to focus particularly um, as our last message in First Timothy upon uh, the four verses, 13, 14, 15, and 16. So here is Paul's word to Timothy, his uh, spiritual son in the faith. Uh, remember uh, that what Paul has written, these are the very words of God himself. So Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we would ask, um, as it is our custom to ask, but never an empty asking, that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to comprehend uh, your word. Uh, we know that spiritual things are written here. Uh, we know that the devil would long for us and seek with respect to us to take our mind off of your word and to put it on earthly things. Uh, uh, the evil spirit would long to keep us distracted, um, blind our eyes to seeing the truth and dull our ears to hearing the truth, and then in many ways raise obstacles to us in terms of obedience to the truth. But we know scripture has promised to us, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so we come with the confidence this morning that you will give us eyes that see and ears to hear and feet that would be swift to follow after Jesus and all that is said here in your sacred word. So we commit this to you. We pray for your grace and mercies to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title reflects how we're going to be looking at this passage this morning, the God of the man of God. Last week, we looked at Timothy in terms of Paul's exhortation for him as one who is a man of God. We looked at a number of characteristics of, of what a man of God is to be like. And we encouraged all the young men to aspire to be men of God. We encouraged all of the mature men in the congregation to continue to be uh, aspiring themselves uh, to live as men of God. We encourage shepherd teachers, the elders of the church, to never forget that it's being a man of God that enables them to carry out the role of being a shepherd teacher, being an elder within the church. And then we encouraged all of the rest, especially uh, the women within our church, to pray that the men of our church would aspire and seek and to maintain the calling to be men of God. This morning, I want us to consider something uh, that's also equally important. In fact, it's even more important. It's the reality and truth that uh, a man of God can only be a man of God if his God is the true God. Because there is a dynamic spiritual relationship between the God that we believe in, the God that we deeply consider to be God, and what that belief does to affect and to form and to shape our character 
and our conduct as human beings. Now, I want us to see that, first of all, in, in the negative. That is to say, I want us to recognize that in the Old Testament, there's a number of statements, but we're going to look at two, that specifically call attention to the object of our deepest concern, the object of our spiritual devotion, causes us to become like that thing that we worship. So first in Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8, it's speaking about idolatry. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Now look at the conclusion, because this is so significant. Verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Those who make and worship idols become like those idols in a very real and spiritual way. Now, there's a similar passage in Isaiah chapter 44, uh, verses 9 through 20. is an incredible passage where uh, God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, deconstructs the whole notion of idolatry and, and demonstrates its inherent contradiction. In fact, it brings it to the point of of essentially saying, in, in the brute honesty of the Hebrew, that those who are idol worshipers have made themselves stupid, absolutely stupid, with respect to reality and truth and spiritual things. But verse 20 really sums it up in this way. It says concerning the idolater, he feeds on ashes, that is not true food. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? That is to say, he loses the ability to see the vanity, the falsity, the very lie that is in his hand that holds the idol. Now, there's a general spiritual truth here that I want us to appreciate and I want us to understand and see. I said it earlier, say it again. What we worship, what we hold on to is that which gives us meaning and purpose. What we place as our greatest commitment, our greatest conviction, that is going to form who we are. It will form our character. It will form our conduct and our code of living. That which we hold most dear in that deepest spiritual, religious, philosophical sense uh, that makes its indelible imprint on who we are as human beings. And so the essential idea is this. The nature of the God we worship creates the person we become. Uh, that is why we're concluding our study of First Timothy in this way. We want to look at these nine descriptions that we see that Paul gives about God to look carefully at the God of the man of God. Now here is the big lesson, the great truth that I want us to appreciate. Because the God that men worship inevitably forms the character and code of the man himself, the shepherd teacher must worship in truth the true God. The shepherd teacher must worship in truth the true God, because that which we worship absolutely determines and forms 
what we become, who we are, and how we live. Now, earlier in uh, this book, in chapter 1, verse 17, in the part of the letter where Paul sees that the, the presentation of the gospel, he writes about this, that the, the presentation of the gospel, the gospel itself leads us to the glory of God, the God who saves sinners. He's written a doxology, so this would be chapter 1, verse 17. And he says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So that's an earlier doxology, an earlier description of God. And now at the end of the book, he's given, he's given even this more complete description and picture of the only true God, uh, the true God of the true man of God. And so we can outline this in terms of nine particular points. And so quickly we'll rehearse these before we look at each one individually. The only true God is he who is first everywhere present, and then who gives life to all things, who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the blessed God, who is the Almighty, who is the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, who alone is immortal, who is invisible, who alone claims the honor of eternal dominion. So we're going to look at these nine descriptions and go through them each one by one and consider as we do this uh, how these great truths about who God is uh, actually forms and shapes the man who worship worships this God. So first of all, the only true God is he who is everywhere present. Now, more literally, Paul is charging Timothy in the sight of God, that is, before God, in, in front of God. It is a reminder that God sees everything because the vision of God is everywhere, because God himself is everywhere. Now, if you were to think about this, you might be reminded of the Psalm of David, Psalm 139, and how David there describes this understanding of the everywhere presence of God. In verses 7 to 12, uh, David writes these words, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. You see, everything there is, is in the presence of God. So the man of God is always in the presence of God. And when that truth and reality are deeply understood, it will dyna dynamically affect how a man is going to live, how a man is going to conduct himself, especially in the face of temptation. Remember the story in the Old Testament about Joseph and how Joseph was sold by his brothers, how uh, Potiphar, an Egyptian, uh, bought him to be his main steward within his household, and how uh, Joseph did quite well. But in doing quite well, becoming the steward of all of his household, uh, Potiphar's wife uh, begins to look at him and then actually begins to seduce or attempt to seduce Joseph. But what is Joseph's adamant response to her? How does he answer uh, this opportunity to sin and to sin deeply? He says this, how could I do this great evil and sin 
against God. Joseph knew that he lived his life in the presence of God. Uh, This shaped his character. This helped to determine his conduct. And it must be that way for all those who would aspire to be men of God. We must see the presence of God everywhere and understand that all that we do is in front of the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The second thing that Paul writes about is is this, that the only true God is he who gives life to all things. Remember that the man of God serves the God who's given life to this world, all living things. But most significantly, Paul is actually reminding Timothy in this matter that his life matters because because of God. His life is a life that God has given to him, which means that his own life actually belongs to God. The God who gives life to all things is the God who stakes his claim and ownership over all living things, especially those who are created in his image. So if a human being thinks that he is the master of his own fate, that he is the captain of his own soul, then he's going to live that way. That always reminds me of uh, perhaps uh, uh, one of the, maybe the most famous song of, of Frank Sinatra, you know, the song I did it my way. Listen to what the last stanza has to say. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. You know, no song is more clear than this song. If you do not think God has given life to everyone, if you do not count your own life as a gift from God, then you will not kneel to God. You will not seek to honor God with your life. But the man of God has a profoundly different understanding, a profoundly different perspective and view of his own life. He sees his life as belonging to God. His life matters to God. He gladly kneels to God even when he will not take a kneel to anyone else. He will kneel before God and he will spend his life for the sake of God's glory. Because he knows his life matters to God. He knows that his life belongs to God. And therefore, he will serve God with all of his life. Now, thirdly, the only true God is he who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul doesn't state the relationship here in the text specifically. But in the very beginning of the letter, he designates God as God the Father the God, the Father, who sent Christ Jesus into this world to save sinners, Uh, the God, the Father, who has stated the mission of Christ, commissioned Christ to fulfill this mission in order to be the only mediator between God and sinful human beings and to be that ransom that pays the debt that they owe. So God has revealed in Christ the salvation that is by his own grace and mercy and not by works. So the man of God is deeply formed by his relationship with God through Christ. That relationship then is based on mercy. It is based on the mercy of an infinitely holy God who has nevertheless willingly sacrificed his own son 
to pay the debt of sin. And this truly forms the character and the conduct of a true man of God. He is a man of grace himself. He is a man of mercy. He is a man of forgiveness. He sees all other people as he sees himself, as a sinner in the sight of God. And he wants all other people to have this same mercy from God that he himself has experienced, that God has given to him. He has heard the voice of Jesus say, Be ye merciful, as your heavenly Father is merciful. Now, at this point in the passage, the rest of what the Apostle Paul has to say uh, about God has been judged to be a doxology. That is to say, uh, the next several characteristics are so written and so composed in such a way that they are, an, as it were, perhaps a part of a hymn that was sung in praise to the glory and honor of God. And the first one of these characteristics then in this doxology is this. The only true God is the God who is the blessed God. He is blessed. He is blessed. Now, that's a sort of a rare way for God to be described in the New Testament, though it does have several references like that in the Old Testament. But think about this. When the word blessed is used of us, when, when we talk about we ourselves being blessed, it always means uh, a blessing, benefit, goodness, happiness that God has given to us his kindness, his favor, bringing that to us. It's, we are always recipients of the blessing. But no one can do that for God. No one can give to God any happiness or blessing because God has nothing he lacks. Really, the idea of God as the blessed God is a way of expressing one of the deepest truths about God. God is completely and totally sufficient in himself. The God that we worship is a God who has no deficiency. He has no lack. He has nothing that could ever be added to him to make who he is or his life in any sense better. And, and, and nothing could ever be taken away. God has everything and God needs nothing. That is why God is blessed. He's fully blessed, completely blessed, eternally blessed. And so the psalm writer says in Psalm 41, verse 13, to end that psalm, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. You see, God is eternally blessed. Uh, in eternity past, God was fully blessed. In eternity future, God is fully blessed. God is completely and totally blessed. God needs nothing. Now, how does that form and shape the man of God? How does that impact his spiritual life and his conduct and, and his code of living as a Christian? Well, this understanding of God is a very, very big thing in comparison with the pagan world. You know, the chief of all the uh, Greco-Roman gods uh, happened to be Zeus or Jupiter. But this particular god, the greatest of the gods, 
And all of the lesser gods were never blessed in themselves and of themselves. These gods were always dependent upon what other gods or mortals would do for them. Uh, and if your happiness depends upon someone else, then you have to wait for them to give you this happiness. Or you have to seek somehow to get it from them. Once again, think about this. The mode of operation here with respect to the blessedness of the Greco-Roman gods, or even the blessedness of the pagans, is quid pro quo. You have to do something in order to make the gods happy because they're dependent upon others to make them happy. You have to do something for them, hoping them that they will do something for you. You have to give in order to get. That's not true of the true God. He is eternally blessed in himself. That is why Christ could come into this world and then not seek his own happiness. It is why he came not to be served, but to serve and to give us life as a ransom for many. That is why Christ could take third place. That is why Christ could be content to be the slave in order to go to the cross to provide that redemption that saves us from our sin. Now, all of this, you see, makes sense to the man of God. He understands God is supremely blessed, fully in himself. He needs nothing from us. So when he gives, he gives totally out of his love, totally out of the fullness of his grace and his mercy. And so the man of God, formed and shaped by this God, always seeks to be this way too. He serves others. He gives others whatever they need without quid pro quo, without that requirement. He gives. He doesn't have to have anything in return, uh, like the pagan man who worships the pagan gods so he can get something in return, or the pagan man who does good things for others so that he might get good things in return. Understanding God as the blessed God, the God who is totally and completely sufficient unto himself, understanding that and embracing that makes the man of God willing to say, I will be content with the blessings that God gives me. They will always be enough for me to give to others without asking for anything in return. Then we go on to the fifth characteristic. The only true God is the God who is the Almighty. This is in verse 15. Now the ESV translates this as sovereign. The closest English word that we have to this particular Greek word is the word dynasty. Uh, that is to say, a royal dynasty, a lineage of power and ruling. So the NIV just simply has the word ruler here. The old King James has the word potentate. But in any case, as soon as you put the word only in front of it, the only sovereign or the only ruler or the only potentate, you have set God apart as the only one who has any real power. You have declared that God is the only true power that reigns and rules over all of this universe that he's created. So the man of God recognizes God as ultimately his only ruler above all earthly powers. Only God is sovereign over his life. Only God has almighty power over his life and destiny. No one else. 
And this means the man of God will seek only this God above all else, for he is the only true God. Now, the theme continues in the next uh, two things that Paul says when he describes God as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, literally, this means the king of all kings or the king of all who could be kings and the Lord of all who could be lords. Uh, Together, these two titles, plus the previous title, express the idea that God is the greatest possible ruler, the greatest possible governor over all of his creation. And that gives to us the greatest possible confidence that God can act whenever he sees the wisdom and the necessity and the rightness to do so. There is no situation beyond God's power to act and to exercise his sovereignty to be the ruler over all of those circumstances. There's never a time in human history. There is never a time in your life and in my life. And the man of God understood that and trusted in that. It's really like Isaiah 59, one says, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Or like the prophet Jeremiah, really God speaking through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? This means that the man of God is fully convinced that God can do all of his holy will with a confidence that God will never fail to act on his own behalf, on behalf of the man of God, when the great infinite wisdom of God, God knows that he must act on his behalf. It's like the hymn writer has said, whate'er my God ordains is right, holy his will abideth. Whate'er our God ordains is right. The seventh characteristic comes in this way, when God is spoken of as the God who alone is immortal. Now, back in chapter one, in that doxology, um, let me read it again, verse 17 of chapter one, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Paul uses there a different word for immortality than he uses here in the sixth chapter. Uh, In the first chapter, the word immortal means this. It means that which is imperishable and that which is incorruptible with the clear implication that God is a God who never changes. God can never be less than what he is now, but God could also never be greater or more than he is now because God is perfect. His nature is infinitely great in every way. So the nature of God never changes. However, the very nature of time is to that which changes. The very nature of time is the perspective by which we see that things actually do change. Time is all about things changing, but God does not change, which means God is untouched by the passage of time. And that is why God is immortal in that sense in which uh, verse 17 of chapter one expresses it. God is immortal the God who never changes. He never changes with respect to time. But here in chapter six, Paul uses another word 
that is also to be translated as immortal. This word in the Greek means the exact opposite of death. It, it's like the word mortal in English. If you want to create the exact opposite of mortal in English, you put the little prefix I-N, immortal. So you have that which is able to die, and then you have immortal, that which is unable to die. And that is exactly the way the Greek word functions here. The main word is death, and you put a prefix in front of it that means that which can't die, unable to die. And therefore, it's always translated into the English as immortal. So Paul is asserting that God is completely beyond the power of death. This invincibility of death, though, belongs to God alone. Only God is the one who's truly immortal. Now, this kind of immortality was completely unknown within all of the pagan religions of the ancient world. None of the gods were actually invincible with respect to death. Uh, Zeus among the Greek gods, Jupiter among the Roman gods, they could be killed. So the whole structure of the pagan understanding of reality, the whole structure of the pagan understanding of the world, so therefore the whole basis of their lives now and for the future, was vulnerable to being destroyed. If their gods could be destroyed, how much more the rest of the world? And the best ideas of the pagan religious uh, doctrines and the, the best ideas of the great philosophers could not give a satisfying answer to this vulnerability of the world. And also no satisfying answer for that personal desire for personal immortality. That in the face of universal fear of death, the hope that the life to come might promise something better. But you see, God is everywhere present. God is the God who gives life to all things. God is the God and Father of his eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the God who is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He is immortal and he is invincible to change. He is invincible to being destroyed. And a man of God who knows the true God, who knows these truths about the true God, will be shaped and formed in his character and his conduct by the truth about God. You see, when our deepest conviction is that God is invincible to the things which kill and destroy, when God is invincible to everything that is destructive within this world, we know that we ultimately have nothing to fear because our invincible sovereign is also our protector. He is our mighty fortress. He is the one who's promised to be our shield. He is the one who is our rock and our bulwark. God is all of those things to us, and he is those things invincibly so. And further, through his son, our Savior Jesus Christ, God has abolished death, and he has brought immortality to light through the gospel. The man of God does not have an empty yearning for immortality. Immortality has become his 
through the message of the gospel, through faith in Christ. Christ who conquered death and who promises immortality, who promises eternal life to all those who have placed their faith in him. And this means that the man of God sees himself as someone who possesses a message, a message that meets the deepest fears of the human heart, especially those who have fallen back into a pagan understanding of the world and the things in it. And the eighth characteristic that Paul goes on to is the God who is invisible. Paul says it this way in verse 16, the true God is one who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. See, God is invisible to the naked human eye. And Paul reminds Timothy of why this is so. The very glory of God is of such a blinding radiance that no eye can behold it. Not even angelic eyes can behold it and live. We're told about this in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 6. There is described for us the six-winged seraphim who fly above the throne of God. And we read there that two of their wings, out of their six wings, two of their wings cover their faces in the presence of God. They cannot look upon the glory of the holiness of God. And then remember the story about Moses in the book of Exodus in chapter 33. Moses begs God. He, he begs to see God's glory. And in verse 20, God replies this way, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Yet the man of God knows the way to God, and he knows the way to behold the glory of God. That way is Christ. For the Apostle John declared in John chapter 1, we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. For no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Christ has made known to us the invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light, the unapproachable light of his radiance and glory. And then Paul has described how this is so. That is how we find the glory of God in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he writes these words. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, the man of God has been changed by the grace and work of God so that in his own heart there is the light of the knowledge of the glory of the invisible God in Christ Jesus. Even though he knows that he is a jar of clay, that he is an earthen vessel, he knows that this power to live as a messenger of God's truth is actually the power that belongs to God, the God who is at work within him, in his own heart. And finally, we read this. The only true God is he who alone claims the honor of eternal dominion. Now, the, the translations have this honor and dominion uh, this way. Uh, the NIV says honor and might forever. And the King James says the honor and power everlasting. But they all mean essentially the same thing. They mean this, that eternal praise, 
eternal worship belongs to God and to God alone. The man of God knows this and has fully embraced this, that he has one great purpose in life, and that is to worship the only one who was worthy of honor and eternal dominion. All of his work on behalf of God and God's truth comes out of his worship of the one true God. The man of God lives to give God all honor and glory and power and dominion now and forevermore. Now in conclusion, we have in the history of church and the history of the, of the true church, so many examples of men of God who were formed and shaped by the true God they worship. Think about Martin Luther, the greatest of the Protestant reformers without question who stood against all the powers of the Roman Catholic Church in his day, the church that held the power of life and death, the power to put heretics to death. In Luther, we see that the God he worshipped formed his character and his code of life as a courageous pastor and as a theologian, as a great reformer and as a hymn writer. His greatest hymn became the battle cry of the Reformation. For in this hymn, we see this truth in Luther's life. What Paul has been declaring to Timothy. Because the God that men inevitably worship forms the character and code of the man himself, the shepherd teacher must worship in truth the only true God. And so in this hymn, Luther declares the God that he worships. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The great lesson that we have looked at today about the God we worship teaches us this, that because the God that men worship invariably and inevitably forms their character and the code by which they will live, the man of God,
The man of God must be, as a shepherd and teacher, one who worships in truth the true God and him alone. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, O oh, blessed God, the only sovereign, King of all kings, Lord of all lords, who alone is immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light that no one has ever seen or can see, to you be honor and glory and power and dominion forever and ever. And Almighty God, by the sanctifying work of your Spirit, conform us as we know this truth, as we depend upon your truth, as we live in this truth. O oh God Almighty, conform us to who you are, even to the image of your beloved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our final hymn this morning is one that uh, reflects the passage which we have just been looking at. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the Ancient of Days, Almighty Victorious, thy great name we praise. Un unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains, high soaring above, thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render, O oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. Amen. And now receive these final words that we find in Scripture uh, to be God's benediction, sending us forth to serve him through this week. Be at peace among yourselves, brothers, while you admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with them all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Amen. May God be with you throughout this week.